Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Last Sunday, we spoke with Premier Brad Wall of Saskatchewan. And I've made it no secret that the Premier would be my choice to be Prime Minister of Canada. He just, to me, embodies the person who should be leading this country. So we covered a lot of territory, including the carbon tax that the Prime Minister of Canada has decided we're all going to be experiencing. And you remember when the Environment Minister federally, Mr. Trudeau's Environment Minister, was meeting with provincial Environment Ministers, and they were trying to come up with an agreement or some sort of, here's the word again, consensus, that they could stand up and deliver to Canadians, here's where we're going, here's the plan, here's the moving forward, that uh, the triptych that we have for the environment. And the carbon tax was going to be part of that. And then the Prime Minister suddenly stood up in Parliament and uh, blindsiding his environment minister, blindsiding all the provincial environment ministers, stood up and made his announcement that there was going to be a federal carbon tax, and if the provinces and territories didn't uh, satisfy him with what they would have in place, that the federal government would just circumvent them. So I spoke with Premier Wall about this, and I want you to have a listen, because we'll open up the phone lines for a period of time for you to to react to this. I spoke with Premier Wall about the Prime Minister's carbon tax, And the premier started by telling us about a phone call conversation he had with the Prime Minister of Canada. Have a listen. I had a chance to talk to the Prime Minister the day after the surprise announcement, and it was disappointing. Uh, The Prime Minister has has, uh, committed himself to a collaborative approach to federalism, and I I don't think it gets less collaborative than standing up while the environment ministers are meeting in Montreal, standing up in the House of Commons and unilaterally announcing the plan that ostensibly ministers of the environment were supposed to be working on. But I talked to him the next day and I asked him another question. I said, "Where, surely before you stood up to announce a transformational change to how we tax the economy, that's what this is. This is a huge change. Surely there must be a federal full-blown economic impact assessment so that the federal government can look Canadians in the eyes and say, yes, we're doing this in the name of 1.6% of global emissions and here's what it might mean to your job. The bottom line is they don't have one. They haven't done one. There's some some reports the working groups, the provincial federal working groups have, and that's the one uh, you quoted off the top of the show that talks about carbon leakage where investment might move to non-carbon taxing jurisdictions like the U.S. But there's not an economic impact assessment. And I said in the speech this week, I said, you know, in our province, if you're going to affect two garter snakes and a frog by moving to culvert, we need an economic impact assessment or an environmental impact assessment. Surely there is an economic impact assessment on this transformational tax change, and there isn't. So I'm worried about the due diligence that has or has not gone into this. Uh, We can't, the Prime Minister can't tell farmers, people in the oil industry, miners, people in manufacturing, what it's going to do, forestry, what it might do to their jobs. I think that's, that's, that's the very least a government better be able to do when they ask them to take a uh, to take steps in terms of in, any environmental plan. Particularly during an economics uncertain time like today, which the finance minister agrees is, is fact. There was a poll that asked Canadians if they'd support a national carbon tax directed toward creating a 
green energy if a new pipeline were simultaneously built to deliver Canada's oil and gas to international markets. Premier, I don't understand why the two have to be linked. Build the pipelines because we need to get our oil and gas to international markets. It's for the economic benefit of all Canadians. And discuss the carbon tax separately. Why do they have to be linked? Roy, I could not agree with you more. This is very frustrating that it's almost become de rigueur in this country to link the two and say, well, you know, I guess it's this notion of social license, which everyone has a different definition for. But the fact that you can sort of link these two, that it's a quid pro quo. Look, Western Canada, if you'll self-immolate with a tax on the industries that actually drive your economies, yeah, then maybe some other region of the country or the federal government might approve your pipeline. Imagine if we did apply the test to cars being shipped out of southern Ontario across the country. If we ask to measure their greenhouse gas footprint of the cars when they're being manufactured and the life of those cars when they're being driven around, and, and then maybe if the greenhouse gas emissions of that process and those cars uh, were low enough and they met some sort of test, maybe we would allow them on the train, on, <clears throat> on the railroad uh, through the rest of the country. Imagine if we did the same thing to chemicals that are produced off, well, in Ontario or anywhere else, or cement from Quebec. Uh, those that are involved in the steel industry in Quebec do a lot of business in Saskatchewan. Imagine if we said, you know, we, we've checked it out, and your steel plants, their emissions are a little high, and so if you would just hit this level, if you would just reduce them to this, then maybe you could continue to do business. But if you don't, we're not buying any more of your steel. That's, it's, not a, it's not a country then, Roy. It's just not a country. It's a series of, of regions that have to, where you have to meet some sort of futile test before your product can move across the country, either from another, perhaps from another subnational, or in this case, from the federal government. And I, I categorically reject that. That's, that's, not, that's not a country to me. That's not yeah. how Canada or any other federation should work. You can hear the frustration in Premier Wall's voice. It's just not a country. It's just not a country when it works that way. When the Prime Minister announces a national carbon tax without there being an economic impact assessment. It's a transformational tax. It's going to affect each and every one of us. But there's no economic impact assessment. And the words that really caught my attention was when Brad Wall, the Premier of Saskatchewan, said, it's just not a country. When you make announcements like that, it isn't. It really is not, and it's very disturbing. Do you find it, and perhaps it's just me, but do you find it disturbing that the Prime Minister of Canada, who's in Europe today signing the uh, free trade agreement between the European Union and Canada, do you find it disturbing that the Prime Minister would stand up and announce a national carbon tax and have no economic impact assessment Nothing that tells us what, in fact, this carbon tax is going to be doing to our economy, more than likely. No study that says it's an up or it's a down or it's a sideways move. Nothing. We do know that Australia repealed its carbon tax in 2014. And looking at the Australian government website, here's what they write. Abolishing the carbon tax will lower costs for Australian businesses and ease the cost of living pressures for households. So the Australians tried it and it didn't work. So they repealed it. Canada's going into one and we have no economic impact assessment. And when the Premier of Saskatchewan says, in the manner that it was done, 
in the manner in which the Prime Minister intends to bring it forward. It's just not a country. That makes me think of Justin Trudeau telling the New York Times that what? There's no core identity in, in this country. That Canada doesn't have a core identity. That it's the first post-national state. All of these things come together in a very uncomfortable way for me. Do you support the national carbon tax declared by Justin Trudeau with no economic impact assessment? We don't know what it's going to do. There's no prediction. There's nothing that's been, no study's been done to give us a sense of what impact it's going to have on this country of ours. But in the manner in which it's being brought forward, the premier of Saskatchewan says it's just not a country. And he's correct. He's absolutely right. This isn't the way you deliver transformational change. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Daniel's in Toronto. Hey, Daniel, thank you for the call, sir. Hi, Roy. Um, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, well, go ahead, please. Oh, yes, I'm very concerned about this. I mean, I think it's very irresponsible of our government to do this without um, an economic impact or seeing what the, you know, what the consequences could be, because this is going to affect mostly the poor people, because those are the people that live in the northern part of our country, and they're the ones who need, in the winter, to burn more carbon and uh, use that, those resources. And I think it's very irresponsible of our government to do that. If you haven't planned for it, what are you doing determining it's going to happen? Plus, at the same time, Daniel... His federal minister of the environment and the provincial ministers were meeting to discuss what was going to be happening, and he blindsided them. Thank you for the call. Kurt is in Alberta. Kurt, thank you, sir. Go ahead, please. Hey, Roy, thanks for taking my call. I totally agree with Brad Ball here. He hit the nail on the head, and there's absolutely no need for a carbon tax. And, like, what what are they thinking? Like, uh, where is this going to get us down the road? Well, I don't know, because there's no economic impact assessment. I spoke yesterday, I don't know if you heard it, I spoke yesterday, some of you did, some of you didn't, with Patrick Brown, the Progressive Conservative Party leader in Ontario, and he's in favor of a tax-neutral, or a carbon tax, or a neutral carbon tax. But also, he, Mr. Brown didn't have uh, an economic impact assessment to speak to. If you're going to make this kind of the word is transformational change. You better have a plan in place that people can understand. And when I heard, um, Kurt, when I heard uh, Premier Wall say that this is not a country in the manner that it's been decided on, that really caught my attention. Yeah, and what really gets me is, I mean, it's just another tax, and now is not the time to be doing it. I mean, we're in dire straits. I mean, even in Alberta here, and and uh, are not the government same thing. They're trying to ram their own carbon tax through on top of uh, the federal one. And Thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it. Paul is in Mississauga, Ontario. Paul, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking, uh, you know, Canada produces 1.65% uh, of the world's uh, carbon. So if they really want to cut carbon, why not bring jobs back from, uh, from China where uh, those ships would spew tons of carbon and all those goods are made with coal burning electricity? I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. I want an answer. I want want an answer from the Prime Minister of this country. I want to know what this carbon tax will mean to you and mean to me and mean to, to each and every one of us. And we don't have that answer. 
We don't even have an assessment of what it's likely to impose and how it's likely to impact. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So, if you are not aware of at least the fundamental headlines that are coming at us fast and furiously, quickly and furiously from the United States, then you're just absolutely cut off from media. You're absolutely cut off. They just continue over and over. And as of Thursday of this week or this past week, things accelerated dramatically as the FBI director, James Comey, announced that he was going to be reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails and the, um, and the uh, illegal server that she had. And that, of course, has now created a further fury and frenzy among those who supported James Comey. Um, that would be the Democrats in July. And now they're absolutely aghast and, well, they're just stopping just short of calling for the execution of the FBI director. I say that metaphorically, please. The likely impact of Jim Comey's letter, what's it going to be? What will it ultimately bring? It has brought into the picture Huma Abedin and Carlos Danger. That was the screen name of her estranged husband, Anthony Weiner. Now, Mr. Comey, as I said, the target of invective of mainstream media carrying water for the Clintons and accusing the FBI director of partisan politics. Mr. Comey, from what I understand, had no other choice. It appears the FBI director is of the view there's very concerning information on those emails, and it was Clinton who scrubbed them. Then there's the Attorney General Loretta Lynch and the Department of Justice, from again, from what I understand, isn't providing warrants for the FBI to read the emails in question. Then there was the question of Lynch meeting with Bill Clinton on the airplane. It just gets really foggy, doesn't it? Uh, the Clintons, of course, have been dogged by scandals for decades, impeachment, and an $850,000 settlement for a woman who accused Bill Clinton of rape. And um, Fran Coombs joins me now to straighten all of this out. He's the managing editor of Rasmussen Polling in the United States, and prior to that, he was a longtime reporter and editor for the Washington Times in D.C. So, Fran, where where do we begin? Where's, where's the logical start point? Roy, I just want to know, are you Canadians jealous? I mean, what an election, huh? <laughs> if you don't this, this, laugh, this, you cry. This thing could have been scripted in Hollywood. Uh, okay, where do we begin? Well, I mean, as you know, um, depending on which pollster you look at, this race was either uh, the, the mainstream media scenario was the election was all over two weeks ago, that nobody even needed to bother to vote. Hillary Clinton was the next president of the United States. Trump kept taking a tour, kept fighting. The, pol- the polls peer- appeared to be tightening up by the end of the race, even among those who had her way ahead. Um, we've, we've had it a close race all along and still believe it is. Then, uh, okay, as you just told your listeners, Comey, James Comey came out and announced that they've reopened the investigation uh, of her handling of classified information uh, through a private email server, which basically exposed it to hacking foreign governments, whatever bad guys, you name it. And we've, of course, uh, we've now dragged in Anthony Weiner, uh, Carlos Danger, and uh, Huma Abedin, the, uh, his wife, his estranged wife, is saying that she has already sworn under oath that she's given up all the emails and everything to the FBI, 
Now it's turning out that there were thousands of them on a laptop belonging to Wiener. Apparently, Abedin is saying she doesn't know how they got there. Uh, the Democrats are now, Hillary Clinton now has an election strategy which is 100% focused on attacking the FBI, which I'm not sure is a very effective or a, uh, is a good strategy to have. So now all of a sudden her sure thing presidency looks like maybe it ain't so sure. Fran, what's the question that American pollsters, that Rasmussen is going to be asking without giving away everything. What will you be asking Americans this weekend based on what's happened in the last 72 hours? What's well, here, the question that has to be asked? Well, here's a couple things that, 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 that we've already asked, Roy. That just literally a week ago, we thought, hey, let's ask again. Uh, let's just ask again about this indictment thing uh, to see uh, how people feel about it. And then, now remember, this is a week before this, this hoorah that we're talking about now. 53% of people still said she should have been indicted. Okay? So over half, that hadn't changed since July. Over half of all likely voters in this country think Hillary Clinton should have been indicted. And interestingly enough, now obviously Republicans overwhelmingly feel that way, but 55% of unaffiliated voters feel that way, and the unaffiliated voters are critical in this election, as you know. But even 22% of Democrats, well, one in five Democrats thought that Hillary Clinton should have been indicted. And that was 10 days ago. That's before this, before this stuff, any of this new stuff's come out. But another survey that I found very interesting that we did back in May, we asked people if Hillary Clinton was indicted, if, if she was in fact indicted, should she step down as the, the Democratic presidential nominee, or should she keep running, should she keep campaigning until a court determines whether she's guilty or innocent? And 71% of Democrats said she should keep running. Even if she was indicted, she should keep That's, running for the president. That, that is mind-boggling. 71% That is mind-boggling. Okay. So, obviously, what we're going to be, the things we're going to be asking this week are things like, should the FBI have released the information? Are you more likely or less likely to vote for Hillary Clinton because of this? I've seen Fox has already done a poll. Three in ten say they're less likely to vote for her. We'll be trying to zero in on her voters specifically to see what kind of impact this has. Uh you know, at this short notice, who knows? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. just want to read a few lines from uh, Fox News. These stories are just developing. I mean, they change almost, I'm exaggerating by the minute, but they're changing quite rapidly. The Justice Department advised FBI Director James Comey against telling Congress about newly discovered emails, possible pertinent to the agency's investigation, I think that should be possibly, into Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton's server system with GOP rival Donald Trump on Saturday suggesting a cover-up. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Polling, RasmussenReports.com, one of the biggest and uh, most respected polling agencies in the United States. And before Fran was with Rasmussen, he was a the editor of the Washington Times newspaper and covered politics in the American capital for, can I say many years? Yes, say many years. Don't, many don't, years. Say, don't be too precise. Don't make okay. me older than I am. Imprecise. Many years. So the question that I asked, and we, we have a lot of territory to cover in the, in the time that we have with you, Fran, but the question that I asked just before we took the break for the top of the hour is, based on everything that's happened in this election, and we can go back to 
when the all the fireworks started during the GOP primaries, will whoever is elected president, whether it's Clinton or Trump or Trump or Clinton, will that person be effectively be able to govern effectively, or are things just too much of a mess? Well, I think I think Trump will be able to. I mean, I, there will be resistance from Democrats, but I think the Republican caucuses in both in both the Senate and the House will go along with him. I mean, he's going to name a Supreme Court justice that they'll like. Uh, he's going to push for reducing taxes, reducing regulation. Those are all things he, they like. Uh, he, he may run into some friction from the Republicans when he starts pulling back on some of the foreign policy things, but I, I, I'm not even sure of that. I think Trump can effectively govern, because as we know, from past experience, no matter how acrimonious these elections are, I mean, you know, George W. Bush had no problem governing even after the election in 2000 it had to be decided by the Supreme Court. So, so business can move on. Clinton, the problem with Clinton is, and I, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't, I, I don't know where, really where to take this, but if Clinton's elected and she's still under investigation, it would seem the FBI would have to wrap up their, they would have to wrap up their investigation by January 20th before she's actually sworn in as president because I believe I'm not quite sure how how exactly you go about prosecuting a sitting president I mean it certainly can be done uh, but I think you have to go through the impeachment process first uh, also you know if they if the, if the FBI before January 20 says yeah we want to seek an indictment um, I mean that's a big cloud to be hanging over her head uh, if it can all be cleared up by January 20th and uh, all the legal authorities say, yeah, there's nothing there, then, yeah, I think she can she can govern effectively. I mean, there'll be a lot of people that are unhappy about it. There'll be a lot of people that suspect funny business. Uh, but I think I think she, too, could govern effectively if they get the investigation over with and she emerges without a recommendation of an indictment. Imagine going in to be sworn in as president of the United States and you have FBI agents or whoever from the Department of Justice ready to hand you a, a summons to appear. Right. And also, I mean, a felony charge. It, it also raises, I mean, this, this is a person it's who's privy to the top secrets in the world. If you're, if you're Great Britain, if you're, uh, if you're uh, Germany, if you're Israel, if you're Canada... Uh, do you want to share your intelligence gathering with someone who's this ham-handed? I mean, now it's turning out what? Anthony Weiner had all of this data from Huma Abedin on her uh, on his uh, laptop. There probably was classified information on there. I mean, it seemed the FBI reaction would suggest that they found some pretty damning stuff, or they think there's some pretty damning stuff on there. And this is how they treat the nation's most vital and most secret information. I mean, it's kind of scary. So you could have Carlos Danger trying to um, sexually impress a 15-year-old in North Carolina, and and on his laptop he has state secrets of the United States, potentially, because the number I've heard is some 10,000 emails right. were and on his laptop. These, right, and many of which, Roy, appear to be the ones that, that Hillary and company bleached and did everything possible to make sure that the, just that the FBI was not able to look at. So these are, these are emails that haven't been seen before, perhaps thousands of them, uh, which a lot of people, those are the, you know, the more than 33,000 that she got rid of. And uh, so, you know, again, we'll see. But, yes, I mean, also, uh, Carlos Danger's laptop is much easier to hack. 
<laughs> of course. You know, I mean, he's just another guy sitting yeah. out there with a laptop looking at porn or whatever, you know? Well, you and I are news junkies, and this is what we do for a living. We're, we're, we're news journalists. We're opinion people as well. Uh, and you seek opinions from from uh, Americans across the board. So we are we pay attention to every nuance. And I'm not trying to talk down or dismiss anybody here, but I'm wondering what percentage of the American voting public is following this as closely as you and I are and other people in, in the media. I was going to say mainstream media, but I won't. Uh, how much yeah, other do- people in the media may be following it? Right. Well, I think, I mean, they're certainly not following it as closely as uh, you and me are working journalists. I mean, they're not following it as closely as we are. But I think, I think most people will certainly be aware in the next few days. Uh, now, yeah, I said most. Uh, 127 million people voted in the last election. Uh, there's an expectation, certainly on the Republican side, that there will be higher turnout this time. I mean, who knows? We'll see. Uh, you're correct. A, a big chunk of those folks have already voted. Um, Obviously, the Republicans are going to work overtime to make sure that every single voter in America links the words Hillary Clinton and FBI in every sentence. Uh, the Democrats, really, because they are trying to influence the chattering classes, are also talking about the FBI 24-7. So that's going to be, it's certainly going to be dominating the news cycle. We're not going to be hearing about Donald Trump and women. We're not going to be hearing about too many issues, I would think, other than how someone handles the nation's secrets. Uh, this the story is going to be: Can Hillary Clinton survive? Uh, is Hillary Clinton going to be indicted? Uh, which are not narratives I think that a candidate wants going into the final days of a campaign. Was Director Comey breaking a rule, or if not a rule, an expectation when he uh, wrote the letter to Congress? Again, we assume, and it's been said over and over, that for him to do what he did on Thursday, there would have to be something that he believes is substantive. But did he break a rule? Did he break an expectation? I, I, I'm not aware of any rule that he broke, but again, I mean, I won't pretend to be an expert on, on FBI, Justice Department policy, but there's no question that this whole thing, starting with Bill Clinton's meeting uh, with uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch on the tarmac at Phoenix Airport in a 45-minute private meeting, right before the FBI announced that they were not going to in, seek an indictment of Hillary in July, uh, the fact that we find out that they interviewed her for three and a half hours, that they allowed all of her, uh, most of her top aides uh, to to claim immunity, uh, a lot of people taking the Fifth Amendment. Uh, there's been all kinds of reports about internal unhappiness at the FBI for not seeking the indictment. So Comey's been under a lot of fire from Republicans and from conservative voters for his decision not to go after Hillary. Now, subsequent to that decision, we've had, there was a big news report a couple weeks ago. It turns out that the number three guy at the FBI, the one who was directly supervising the Hillary Clinton investigation, that one of uh, Hillary Clinton's biggest fundraisers, Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, poured $600,000 into the wife of of this FBI director's state Senate campaign. $600,000 $600,000 into a state Senate race. And believe me, you don't need $600,000 to run for the state Senate in Virginia. And that, so one of basically Hillary Clinton's bag men poured that money into this woman's race, and her husband was the one that had virtually final decision on whether or not to seek an indictment on her. Nobody knew that before. I'm not even sure Comey knew that. He may have found that out in the last two or three weeks. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
So the Prime Minister of Canada made his way to Europe where the um, Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement between the European Union and Canada were signed today, CETA, CETA, or CETA, however it's pronounced. Uh, Jeff Semple is the European Bureau Chief for Global News, joins us from Brussels. Jeff, uh, thank you for the time. And what does uh, what does the agreement mean to Canada in the short and longer term? Where specifically does it help our economy? Well, you know what, Roy, that is the obvious question, but it's also one that, you know, you really have a hard time getting a, a clear answer to. I mean, I think the government will tell you, the Justin Trudeau's liberal government will tell you that it will generate around $12 billion for the Canadian economy every year, and that that breaks down to around $1,000 extra per Canadian household per year. So it sounds pretty good, but that would be, of course, if it was all divvied up evenly, uh, which certainly many critics don't expect it will be. You know, there's still a lot of opposition to this deal with people pointing out that, you know, concerns that it predominantly favors large corporations. But today, Justin Trudeau was, you know, adamantly making the case in a way that we haven't really heard from him before, that this deal is first and foremost for ordinary Canadians, for the middle class that, you know, they can look forward to lower prices in the supermarket for things like cheese, for example example, and that Canadian exporters can look forward to getting rid of around 98% of tariffs between the European Union, uh, of course, the world's largest trading bloc. So in the short term, what we're waiting for now, a couple more hurdles that still need to, to be passed, legal ones that most people expect uh, will, will pass, though, you know, as we've seen from Wallonia over the past week, this has been a difficult one to predict. But assuming all goes to plan in the next few months, we will see the tariffs coming down, and you should be seeing the impact almost instantly, whether you're a consumer or an exporter. And so part of the challenges would be, it would include the strategic partnership agreement, the side deal, and also the ratification? Yes, well, that's right. And so the ratification obviously needs to come first and foremost from the European Parliament. So this is one more chance for a massive body, nearly nearly 400 members of European, or excuse me, nearly 800 members of the European Parliament who get to have a vote. Many of them are opposed, but it's believed that they have the majority needed to pass. The other big hurdle uh, gets a little bit more technical, but the European Court of Justice will now examine ISDS, it's the acronym used to describe this new CETA court that's proved quite controversial. And this, this court would have the ability to decide when a corporation, for example, could sue a government if they felt that government was interfering with their investments. Now, Wallonia, you'll remember that, you know, previously unknown, now world famous rebel region of Belgium, right. was particularly upset about that. They So part of the agreement to get them on side was to say, look, we'll ask the European Court of Justice, the highest court in Europe, to look at this new CETA court mechanism to make sure that it meets European standards. Most people, I think, expect that it does. And I think most of the international trade experts and European experts we've been speaking with here over the last week also expect the European Parliament to pass all of this. So a few more hurdles to go, but, you know, really more speed bumps than, you know, the type of hurdle that we saw in Wallonia last week. In the UK, one of the issues was that that led to Brexit was the huge bureaucracy that exists within the EU. And you mentioned this this court. Um, is, will the decision-making, will, will, will the eventual decisions in any disputes come out of Brussels, or is it going to be a combination, Ottawa and Brussels? 
Yeah, the, the theory behind um, behind this new seat of court is that it would be a combination of Ottawa and Europe, that there would be, I think, 15 judges appointed from both sides. The idea is that it would, you know, trying to make it as, as transparent as, and, and public as possible to try and appease some of these concerns, and that they would have the final word. So, you know, theoretically, a large multinational corporation so, say wants to sue Wallonia for you know being too protective or for you know introducing tougher labor laws that are somehow interfering with its investment. Well, if this new CETA court rules that indeed Wallonia broke the rules, then doesn't matter what any other government thinks; they would have the right to sue the Wallonian municipality, and you know the same would go for suing a federal government. And it's it's possible that through this court. A corporation could sue Canada successfully, as we've seen in other situations like NAFTA, for example. Yeah. Jeff, what is it that uh, was most fascinating to you and most uh, intriguing and perhaps uh, uh, challenging as far as this whole CETA agreement was concerned leading up to the signing today? Well, yeah, certainly leading up to it, we spent a lot of time in Wallonia and, you know, wanting to, I mean, we'd heard only really bits and pieces of about this this region of Belgium that, that no one had ever heard of that was suddenly going to cost the Canadian <laughs> economy billions of dollars every year because they were refusing to budge. But, you know, they, they really echo a lot of what we've heard from, you know, in, in the Brexit debate and, and, you know, to a certain extent from some Trump reporters just sort of fed up with the status quo, fed up with these large multinational corporations getting richer. Well, many of them feel they're just, you know, continuing to get poorer. So they've lost trust in the experts. And, you know, that was a refrain we heard many times with Brexit. And that, I think, you know, was was quite startling, just the comparisons, having covered Brexit and then having been to Wallonia. They are fighting the same fight here. And it's one, as I say, that we see going on in the United States election campaign right now. Wallonia finally agreed to come on side and I think you know a lot of people have applauded them for for taking this on the other thing that I think is is getting a lot of talk here Roy is that Canada is just being heralded as sort of going the opposite direction you know Brexit and Trump going one direction Canada that sort of you know the economist uh, the the influential British magazine last week called Canada's efforts heroic in trying to fight for globalization for liberalization for free trade because you know the stats show that that free trade does a lot of good of course but you know the concern has always been and continues to be whether that's a lot of good for the greatest number of people yeah I know you have to leave us but interesting is that the UK is still part of the EU so I guess they're still part of the deal yeah, they are, and, and how long they are remains to be seen. Yeah, and you know what? It's, as, as an expert pointed out to us, the government keeps talking about this $12 billion figure uh, that's you know $12 billion a year from this new deal, but that study was done back in 2008, and obviously when, when the UK does leave, it's going to take a pretty big bite out of that. We know they plan to start that process this spring, and then they have two years to officially Brexit. So, yeah, I think the United Kingdom may may have a brief stay in this uh, CETA agreement, but uh, we'll be waving goodbye to them pretty quickly. NAFTA, Brexit, CETA, who knows what's yet to come. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Cheers. Thanks, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We spoke with Dr. Bjorn Lomborg twice, uh, once leading up, well, we've spoken to him more than twice, but when COP21 was underway, we spoke with Dr. Lomborg before COP21 began and then after it uh, it ended and He's with us again on the program today. 
Uh, Dr. Lomborg is an economist and author. Cool It is one of his books. He's the founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center Think Tank, at Bjorn Lomborg on uh, Twitter. And I want to speak with Dr. Lomborg about two opinion pieces that he wrote. One is The Free Trade Miracle, and the other is How Green Policies Hurt the Poor. And that's something that we talked about following COP21. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you back with us. Hey, Roy. It's great to be back. So Canada and the European Union signed the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement today, CETA. What's your view of CETA and then, by extension, how significantly important is free trade? Well, Roy, we really can't underestimate how much good free trade both has done and can do. Uh, We often forget to remember how it's really enriched almost anyone's lives uh, across the world. If you look at the facts, uh, we now know that especially for poor people, uh, free trade has made many of the conveniences that they buy much, much cheaper. So the reality here is, you know, fundamentally the point that you import a lot of the cheap goods from China, that has made most low-paid people much better off over the last 20 to 30 years. And uh, this is simply because most poor people spend a large proportion of their income on buying stuff, whereas rich people typically buy services. They buy butlers, if you will. uh, And that, of course, does not actually improve inefficiency when you open up for free trade. But this is only part of that argument. The other part, of course, is to remember that it helps poor people in poor countries. Uh, Fundamentally, China has over the last 30 years or so lifted about 700 million people out of poverty. We've never seen anything like this in the history of mankind. And that is to a very large extent because it's been driven by free trade. So the reality is free trade does have some problems. It does leave some people who produce things that are inefficient, that it leaves them worse off. And those are, of course, often the totemic uh, you know, uh, 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 decayed factories that we see on, on TV, and that is a real issue. But it neglects the fact that many, many more people get better off with free trade. And so we actually estimate more free trade over the next 15 years could actually leave the world in the order of $11 trillion better off per year. That is, for the average person in the developing world, about a thousand dollars richer per person per year that's a phenomenal outcome and so we need to remember this is overall a phenomenal issue how do you bring uh, traditional opponents of free trade on side and i'm thinking particularly of the united states whether it's donald trump or hillary clinton neither of them is uh, particularly uh, enthusiastic about free trade yeah no look and 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 the real problem with free trade is of course it's very, very easy to say we don't want this. And we also saw that, obviously, in, in, in Bologna and, and, and the EU, uh, you know, people actually protesting the Canada-EU free trade agreement, and much, much more, as you mentioned, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, U.S. presidential election where uh, Donald Trump, who's you know, made a lot of money from free trade, is now against free trade. And Hillary Clinton, who's also been very pro-free trade, is now saying she's against free trade. It's simply much easier to placate the very 
uh, vocal people who are losing out on free trade. There will be losers from free trade, as I mentioned before. Uh, we probably estimate that about 20% of the benefits that you get from extra free trade are actually lost to someone. So there's a significant loss to free trade. Some people will have to be reschooled. Some people will have to change their jobs. Some people will not get another job, and that's a real tragedy and a, uh, and a damage for them. But what we have to remember is that many, many more people are going to be better off from free trade. And so we need to point out the facts that this is actually better. You know, uh, the middle-class American can buy 29% more for each of their dollars because of the free trade that we've gotten over the last 30 years. But even so, the poorest 10% of all Americans can actually buy 62% more. And so we need to point out, yes, there are problems. Yes, we need to be better at reschooling, retooling, making sure that we do all we can to also get the losers of free trade on board again. But we need to point out also that many, many more people win. Dr. Lomborg, I'd like to talk to you about uh, climate policies and uh, or, or green policies and how they hurt the poor, which is the title of an article that you wrote for the UK publication The Spectator, and you warned about that following COP21 on this program. And you write that uh, while British environmentalists boast electricity use has dropped almost 10% since 2005, they leave out that the cost of electricity has increased by more than 50% in that same time period. And politicians who promote green policies and renewables, coupled with carbon taxes, chatter about hundreds of thousands of new energy jobs being created. Instead, we find virtually no jobs created, at least that's been what I've, what I've come across, and, and people suffering and dying from cold home-related illnesses, something you pointed out to us uh, following COP21, that in the U.K., the elderly, the poor, often will ride the buses all day in the wintertime just to stay warm. Yeah, and, and this is really you know, sort of the, the dark corner of climate policy that it has a real cost for poor people. The fundamental point is if you put a carbon tax on, on, uh, on, on energy, and, and, and quite frankly, I'm not against that. I actually think it's an efficient way to do it, but we rarely just do that. We also subsidize inefficient uh, uh, forms of energy, typically solar and wind, and we end up with much more expensive uh, 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 energy costs. We see that very clearly in, in Denmark and Germany that runs ahead of the, uh, of, of the pack in getting green energy. We have some of the highest costs of energy in the world for consumers. That has real costs because for poor people, energy is a much bigger percentage of their expenditure. So they actually, when the energy prices go up, have to cut much more. And as you mentioned, uh, the UK actually reduced their uh, uh, their energy, uh, cons sorry, their electricity consumption by about 10%, but they increased the prices by 50%. Who was it that cut their, carb uh, their, their electricity consumption? It wasn't the rich. The rich used the same amount of energy all the way through because they could afford to. But the poor, the poorest actually had to reduce their consumption dramatically. And so you have to recognize that it has a real social downside, that you end up being very regressive when you put on, for instance, a carbon tax, because it hits the poorest the worst. 
And that we see very clearly in, in the UK, where, as you pointed out, you have lots of people riding around, lots of pensioners riding around in buses, deciding that they can only heat part of their apartments, staying underneath their carpet, sorry, underneath their duvet at Christmas Eve, about an hour longer, because they don't want to get up in their cold apartment. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm actually quoting from... Uh from what you've written and what you've talked to us about, and I've done some more research on it, and it's troubling. And we didn't always have cheap electricity. It's been cheap in the last few decades. And it is that particular electricity, which you point out as well, is the lifeblood of economic prosperity. So increase the cost, reduce the supply, create phony promises about renewables. And I may be exaggerating here, but we're heading back to candles and horse and buggy times. (laughs) Well, we're definitely heading back to a place where energy is going to be more expensive, and that means that you can use less of it, and that hurts the poor the most. And let's not forget that this is not just true in the developed world where it hits the poorest regions and the people who are struggling to make ends meet. It hurts them a lot more, and it simply means, for instance, in Britain, that you have to decide, do you want to keep your whole apartment heated? Do you want to have it heated to an extent that it's actually comfortable for you? But it also hurts the poor in the developing world that are just trying to get on the industrial wagon that are actually trying to get all the things that will bring wealth, as you pointed out. If you go to a country in the developing world, you typically see countries being very dark if you fly over them. Lots of patches are just totally dark. And even in the center of the cities, it'll often be a lot darker because electricity comes at a premium. So you really use it sparingly. But that, of course, means you have less access to electricity for uh, uh, refrigerators. It means that you, your food spoils more, less for your domestic services like uh, 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 stoves, which means that you have more indoor air pollution, and you don't have the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the aggregates to actually run industry or agriculture as efficiently as we do. It simply keeps them back, holds them back more in poverty. Uh, Dr. Lomborg, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today. Great to talk to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Jeff Screema joins us. He's the former mayor of Waukesha, Wisconsin, one of Wisconsin's larger municipalities and a suburb of Milwaukee. And Jeff was on the air with me. I guess, Jeff, the first time we talked to you was just as the primary process was getting underway, right? Hello, Roy. Yes, that's correct. And you had given an interview to the BBC, and that's how... I heard about you, and you were a supporter of, uh, of Mr. Trump. So have you stated a supporter of Donald Trump throughout? I have. Um, I believe that we need change in Washington, D.C., and he's the only one that can bring it. So what kind of change does Donald Trump bring? What, what is, you know, I, I, I heard Obama use change, change you can believe in. Now I hear change, I hear Hillary Clinton talking about change, although I don't know how she would change anything. Uh, I hear Donald Trump talking about change. What kind of change does Donald Trump bring to the presidency if he's elected? Well, he's an outsider, and he's not part of the crony capitalist uh, pack that have been running D.C. for years. And I believe that he has common sense, and he's going to look out for the American people. Have you had any doubts along the way when the various news stories were released about what he's done or hasn't done, what he said, or he says he hasn't said, or when he 
uh, said, look, what I said about women was locker room talk. I don't know any men who've ever had that kind of locker room conversation. I said it at the time. I'll say it again. Was there any doubt along the way, Jeff? Um, No. I mean, given the other choices, um, there was not. Uh, I look at the totality of the candidate. Um, Obviously, there's no perfect candidate, but in looking at everything, um, I believe that Trump has what it takes, and I believe he's going to win. I wouldn't be surprised if he does. By the way, I could not vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure about Donald Trump. Uh, I might, if I were an American citizen, I might not, might spoil my ballot. I don't know. But I know that I could not vote for Hillary Clinton. The, the current investi- or the current situation with the FBI director reopening the uh, the server issue, where do you think that's going to lead? Uh, you're you're living in D.C. What's what's being said? Well, there's a big problem there. Uh, it appears as though uh, the FBI either did a bad job on their first investigation, or there's some uh, very important new information that they have. Um, otherwise, the FBI director would not have come out at this point. Um, And I think it just speaks to the corruption um, that's in Washington and has been there for years. There's a big concern about about what goes on in the halls of power. And there's concern as well about mainstream media carrying the water for the Clintons. Here's a family with a history of scandal and sexual abuse. And I, this morning, I was looking at some of the stories in the Washington Post, and I, I asked myself, this is the Watergate investigating newspaper. This is the same newspaper, and uh, and 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 they're just they're just paving the the, the road for Clinton with almost. Um, I want to be fair to them with not very many challenges tossed her way. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, the media has become very one sided um, when it comes to this election. Over ninety percent of the media <clears throat> donate their money to the Democratic Party, I think, which says a lot. Um, And I think they're going to be put in their place, just like what we saw with uh, Brexit. What do you think it's going to be like, and final question for you, Jeff, uh, what do you think it's going to be like in the United States on the morning of November the 9th? Do you think Americans are going to say, hey, you know, we're we're signing on to this, we have a president-elect, we've gone through the process as ugly as it's been, we will go with the decision. We'll accept the decision of the voters, or is it going to be um, sort of a nasty morning in the U.S.? Well, first of all, I hope that we can get there, um, with get to that point without any significant problems. There's so much pressure right now politically um, regarding this election that um, you know it, it sets up a situation for bad things to happen. Um, the day after the election, I think that. There will be many people that are unhappy. Um, however, we've been through this before. So people will be unhappy for a day or two, and they're going to move on with their lives. We'll give you a call after the election and see how you feel the, uh, on the following weekend. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thank you, Roy. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.